Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be episode number 425. This is going to be with my friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. I want to thank him for his time. I also want to thank you guys, the listeners. I want to remind you that you can send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com with any questions, comments, anything to do with the podcast. Also, a direct message on my Instagram account. That's at jscottoutdoors. I want to thank you guys for all your avid support. Um, this podcast uh, audience just keeps growing, and I really appreciate your support. I also want to thank the sponsors. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. I want to remind you guys, if you're not already an Insider member, you can use the J. Scott promo code when you sign up. Uh, you're going to get an GoHunt Gear Shop gift card for $50. And you can uh, redeem those dollars immediately and buy something in the store as well as put it towards the next purchase. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider for their sponsorship. And uh, I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, KUIU.com. If you want to find out the best ultralight hunting gear, go to Kuyu.com and check it out. Uh, phonescope.com use the jscott16 promo code you're going to save some money you're going to get a 10 percent discount there at phonescope.com and outdoorsmans.com or 1-800-291-8065 also want to remind you on saturday uh, that would be i believe april 14th uh, 7 a.m to 11 a.m the outdoorsmans there in arizona is having an open house kind of having a a long-range glassing BTX open house. You're going to be able to um, check out all the optics, and it's kind of a demo day, so to speak. So I'm going to be out there. Um, Love love to see you guys. Uh, Come on out. Uh, Love to see you guys out there. So let's get right to this episode with Chris Rowe. I thank you for uh, all of your support. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have our friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources on the podcast, and Chris is right in the middle of the Kansas, uh, he's waiting between the youth season and the archery season, uh, I guess it opened, what, April 9th, but you've got a client coming in uh, tomorrow night, is that right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, that's right, so we had our we had our youth hunters uh, last, well, right, well, the, the the first couple days of season, and I've got a break, and so yeah, that next guy comes in tomorrow night late, and then we'll start hunting Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Before we get into uh, what you've been noticing during the week here, and your kind of outlook for this archery season, and with weather and all the things that play into it, last time we talked, you were to roost and kind of pattern and check out some birds for. You had a couple of girl youth hunters. Um, walk us through how that, uh, you know, that morning went and how the hunt went and your observations and such with how the hunt went down. And uh, you obviously got two great birds, and, um, uh, but tell us, tell us all about it. Yeah, we ended up with a total of three, which is, which is great. But, yeah, no, so when I, when I hung up and got done talking with you, I put those birds to bed, and it's a chunk of river bottom, big, big, long chunk of river bottom that I managed. And there were two or three, depending on the day, that some of the birds would kind of group up or break up, but usually about two to three different groups of birds were roosting in a couple different spots on that river bottom. Well, it seems to always happen this way that, we, you know, you get bad, you know, 
you get great weather when no one's here, and then just as soon as somebody gets ready to hunt, the weather just turns horrible. And that's what happened with them is um, the we got this this brutal, brutal strong wind. So the the first morning of their hunt, I we climbed into a blind that was in between two different groups but it was in a spot where it was protected so it made sense that that might be a place where those birds wanted to go well it's and just so everybody knows it yeah it's it's me dad and then the two two girls 11 and 13 sadie and Allie, and and both of them they're just these tiny petite little things they're i mean they may weigh 50 50 pounds fully dressed soaking wet you know what i mean they're just tiny little girls they're they are a riot they are the type of of kids that just make and jay you're a guide and, and and for anybody that that takes other people hunting and especially if you take kids hunting you know that there's some that some clients that they're just challenging that's just all there is to it they're, it's just it it's just challenging but every now and then you get somebody that or especially kids that just they just they're the reason why you love doing what you're doing and these these two girls are are that they were they want that they are turkey hunters they are just flat out they're just hunters they wanted to be there they were present in the moment it didn't matter that we were getting up at 4 30 in the morning they were up they were ready they were excited it didn't matter how long of hikes we had to take the fact that we were crossing rivers it they loved every second. They had a great attitude. They are funny as all get out and just sharp as tacks, just, just sharp wit and just, oh, they're just a blast. And so we get set up that morning uh, in, in between the two different roosts. Well, the way the wind was and the, the behavior of the birds, they, they just didn't come into the blind within the first few hours of uh, sitting there. And, again, it's brutal wind, but seriously, it was like 14 degrees that morning, you know, the first morning. It was cold and windy the entire time they were here. So we packed up, moved, went to another sheltered little pocket that I knew of, and, yeah, pulled in, and boom, there's two mature birds in there. We get in, get set up and start calling, get these birds to come right in. However, and I set up the whipping boy, the typical whipping boy set up, and again, this is why I do it. I, I always want to give the birds an option. Well, these two gobblers come in, and very mature. I mean, the one that she ended up killing, uh, Sadie Killer, was at least a three-year-old bird. Almost a 10-inch beard, almost inch spurs, um, but two came in, and when they came around this blowdown, they saw the decoys and immediately went to the Jake decoy. And before they started beating up on him, they could, I, I think probably the combination of us sitting in the blind, uh, just a, a variety of factors on, on the setup, I think they got a little nervous about the starter decoy and or the fact that the blind that we were sitting in now all of a sudden had a bigger gap, a bigger opening in it. And so they didn't get any closer than about 25 yards. Now, they're both using a 20-gauge, so their their desired shot was, was about a 20 max, but this is 25. I thought they could do it. Sadie 
made a good shot. She, I mean, they're down. I mean, both the girls are excited. She shot, but when she shot, some I think she went a little high, and she hit the bird hard, but didn't catch. None of the pellets caught bone, and so the bird goes down. Bird jumps back up, he's flopping around. Then he gets up and he stands there. Well, long story short, they were so excited that she could she she couldn't make a good shot on the second one. So I we put the guns away. I yours truly stuck out of the blind and snuck up out stuck up there and, and had to do a full on run down tackle, grab him, ring his neck, but that that hunt ended up fun and, and so we, we get the first bird, get a bunch of pictures and everybody's having a blast and getting a game plan for the next day. Well the next day, um, we make this huge hike, you get down across the river bottom, get into a blind and sure enough the birds work right off the roost like we thought. I mean it took time getting there, but they worked their way right into this little protected pocket that we had, and, and both of them ended up, Allie shot hers first, boom, put that one on the ground. The second one stuck around long enough for us to, to get another beat on him, and, and Sadie got her second bird, and it was, they only had two days to hunt, so three birds, two days with two little girls and bad weather, I'll take it. It was, it was a blast. It was fun. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned the Whipping Boy setup. For those listeners that haven't heard those prior podcasts where we talk about it, talk about the Whipping Boy setup, your strategy, placement, and what have you with that. It's basically, when I go in, especially early season, now, now as we move through into season, maybe I will not use this as much, but especially out here uh, early in the season, usually the first week to 10 days or so, when the birds are still grouped up somewhat, and they're just starting to get, they're very aggressive towards one another, the gobblers are, are aggressive towards one another, I will take a full complement of decoys out with me, so I'll have multiple hens, but I will have a Jake decoy, and I will have a strutter decoy. I usually set the strutter decoy about 10 yards in front of the blind, right where we want to take the shot, and then I'll take that Jake decoy and put it five to seven yards beyond you know, past or farther from the blind, and then off to one side or another. So, so both decoys, the, the strutter and the jake, are right smack dab down the barrel of a shotgun, or right smack dab in the primary opening for a for an archery shot in the blind that we want to take. And then I'll put the 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 hand decoys around just for added realism uh, from that. But my philosophy has always been: we never know if we're going to have a gobbler that's aggressive or whether we're going to have a gobbler that, you know, like, like we talked about before, the you know, lovers or fighters. you got some birds that are lovers, some birds that are fighters. If we don't know the type of bird that's coming in, by using that whipping boy setup and by spacing them out and spreading them out, you know, five to seven to ten steps apart from one another, it opens that spread up to where not only is it very realistic looking, but more importantly, a gobbler can come in, work in and around those decoys without getting so close that he feels threatened by those decoys. So he can actually come in, and if he's aggressive, he can go right to the jake, or he can go right straight to the strutter and start beating up on the strutter. But if he's a little bit more timid, he can come in, and maybe he just wants to beat up on the jake, so he'll go to the jake. Or sometimes you'll have birds that just come in. They don't want any part of the, the strutter or the jake, but they want to strut for the hens. By doing it that way, it gives a setup that 
the birds want to come into, but it gives them the option to engage however they want. And so if the birds come in and engage that jake or the strutter, they're smack dab either 10, 15, 17 yards in front of the blind and right there for, you know, in this case, two little girls or youth hunters or, or if you've got an archery hunter or a shotgun, it doesn't matter. It puts those birds right smack dab in the middle of your shooting window. And, Chris, how does that differ as the season moves forward? I mean, it sounds like uh, a great strategy throughout the whole season, but why would you maybe change that up as the season progresses? Well, what you end up seeing is, it, at least for us out here, as the season progresses, a lot of those towns will start to break off, and they will have their little core group of hens that they're going to sit with, and they will lock down with those hens. And as, as the season progresses, they've get been in so many stinking fights at this point that some of those birds are just done with it. They don't, they don't want to engage. Also, you can end up in situations where, and there's a lot of areas like this, where especially later on in the season, you may have a gang of jakes. There's maybe four, six, eight jakes running together, and all of a sudden they just end up being this group of bullies that run everybody around. Well, if that's the case, as we move in, into the, later in the season, sometimes those gobblers just do not want to even be near another strutter. And so if they see a strutter in the field, they, they might gobble, they might strut, but they stay off at a distance. So if that's the case, then I will just remove the strutter, leave the jake and then the hens, and oftentimes that will get them to come in. But then as we start moving later on, real late in the season, there's times when all I will do is just go out with a single hen, upright hen, and just make it look like a single hen out there looking for a gobbler uh, that's off cruising or off on his own. So as the season progresses, yes, I will change my setup, and it's usually just based off of the behavior of the birds that we're dealing with. And you can kind of see that. And quite honestly, this past, you know, that hunt with the girls, literally both groups of toms, came in to our decoy spread, and both groups, now the second day, the second group that we killed the two birds out of, there were at least three, if not four, mature birds and several jakes that were in that group, and they walked right by the strutter and went straight to the jake. They did not, did not want anything to do with that strutter. So I'm actually thinking for this weekend, I may, depending on the situation, I may try the whipping boy setup once, and if I get the same reaction where they just don't want the strutter, I'll just leave them out of the mix. I'll just leave them out. But it's all just based on the behavior of the birds that I'm working. Yeah, it's um, good stuff. And those birds are real grand turkeys um, that, that you're Correct. playing with their would your strategy change at all if, say, you were hunting mountain merriams or, or such? Would, would you still go with the whipping boy set up early, early on? And then, you know, is there any difference between, say, hunting those rios and hunting merriams and, and easterns, for that matter? You know, I don't think so. If we're, sitting, if we're talking about a population dynamic uh, where you have a large group of birds, I have seen situations where, in, like, say, for Colorado. Now, this is for Rio Grande's again, but this is Colorado, eastern plains, on some of those dry river corridors where the entire population of turkeys might literally consist of six hens and two jakes and, and maybe one or two gobblers. 
That's it. That's the only population of birds for miles. These birds know each other. They've met. They're not used to any other birds in their area. So sometimes um, in those situations, those birds are, can be extremely cautious. I've seen that happen with mountain merriams too. If you're dealing with those little tight, isolated, small pockets, those birds get really leery of all of a sudden, here's a big spread of new birds. You're like, where the heck did they come from? That's not right. But for, you know, like you and I, like you guys getting ready to go back down for ghouls, what we saw last year, you've got piles of birds all in the same place. You've got mountain merriams in some of these areas where you've got a really good population to whether we're talking about, like, say, southwest Colorado or we're talking about northeast or eastern Wyoming or western Nebraska where you've got a good population of birds where you have a lot of conflict and, inter, you know, just a lot of mixing of new birds coming and going and a lot of uh, behavioral interactions, dominance interactions, absolutely I will use that setup as my initial setup just to take the temperature of what the birds I'm dealing with. So, yeah, absolutely. Chris, we talked about, um, I've done some podcasts on the white face, uh, DSD Strutter and DSD Jake. I talked to Matt Winters. Uh, I talked to Brad Cochran um, and with DSD and had, have had several uh, episodes. I'm curious, uh, I've been going back through old videos. I can't find videos where the gobbler is mating the, the laying hen or the breeding hen you know, or a, a hen decoy or even the real thing I've got been going through, and I don't see where it turns all white, but they're having a lot of success with just the white face. Chris Stone out in uh, California uh, is is a firm believer in it. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that it is something that a gobbler does right before breeding, but I am thinking that it definitely is a behavior. I've seen lots of... Gobblers with white heads. I see that more in a real content, real passive, real kind of lovey-dovey, if you will, uh, gobbler with hens. No other gobblers around. Real blue and white. Talk a little bit about. I, I, I think you listen to those podcasts. Your thoughts and observations. Obviously. Everybody has their own observations. Everybody has their own things that really work for them. Matt Winters is saying it's night and day. He would always take the white face. So we have to take what he's saying and go, okay, I get it. Why is it working so well for him? Why is it working so well for Chris Stone? I'm curious your ideas. There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious what your thoughts are with that. Well, like, yes, first and, first and foremost, yes, I listened to those podcasts. I thought they were great, um, and obviously there's no question these guys are highly experienced, highly successful, and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the uh, Matt is the outfitter right here in Kansas, out in uh, eastern Kansas. Is that his name, Matt? Yeah, Matt, yep. Okay. Um and, and Matt, if you're listening, I apologize. Uh, he's obviously making a living at this, and, he, and he's doing very, very well, and they're killing just a pile of birds. But, Jay, this is where I think if you go back to our initial conversation, when you asked my opinion about it, 
and I made that statement. I said, if he is in a situation where there are a lot of mature birds, it actually makes sense. Because, again, and, and this is something, again, I agree with you. Everybody's got their opinions. I am coming at this from a researcher as a biologist position uh, standpoint as someone, and I, and I talk about this on the Oak module, um, if we want to really, if we're just talking about success in the hunt and we don't care really about what the behavior is, then who gives a crap? Is it, can it be successful? Yes. In the right situation, absolutely. If you're like me and you geek out on the behavior and you really want to truly understand some of this stuff, then just like I talk about with the elk stuff, the only way to really test a hypothesis, an idea, an opinion, you do not go out and try to find more examples of what you believe. And instead, you should be going out and trying to find examples where your idea fails. You can never prove something to be the only thing you can really do is disprove it. And if you go out with the attitude of, okay, I believe, right, let's, just use, let's just use this one on its face value. I believe the white face has to deal with a bird that's, that's going to breed a hen, okay? If all I do is I go out there and I, I look for examples of where that happens, then it's going to automatic, of course it's going to bolster my idea of that that has to be. It's just going to provide, it's a positive feedback loop where I just, I, I see it, it's what it is, of course it is. But the problem is, is you can start to get blind to examples where that may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, or if it fails, well, then you have to go back and re rethink your assumptions. And like you, Jay, I went back and I looked at some of my video footage, and literally on my Instagram page today, you saw the video I posted, and I, I, I am so bummed. I had it, it was through the spotting scope with the phone scope, and I literally saw this happen. I'm scrambling to get the thing set up, and of course, as soon as I hit record, he, the bird drop struts and moves off. But I have always maintained that a white head is a bird that is visibly broadcasting and, and showing through his head colors that he believes he is a dominant bird, that he is the boss of that hen that he's with or that he's the boss of that particular area. Or, or wherever he is, but he believes he is the dominant individual. And so today, perfect example, we've got a situation where we've got three bird, three mature birds out in a cornfield. Two are off on the east end of the cornfield with their group of hens. One is locked down literally with one hen. He's out all by himself, one hen. All of a sudden, now... At this time, all three of those birds are with their hens. They're following those hens around, and their heads are just bright red, white, and blue. Beautiful red, white, and blue. All of a sudden, four new birds come up out of the river bottom and hit the, they step out into the cornfield and on the edge. The one lockdown that was the closest, the single Tom that had the single hen, he was the closest one to those new birds. The new birds stepped out, 
saw their heads were red, white, and blue. They went to full strut and then back down to upright. They went back down to full strut. They went back up to upright, just kind of looking. As soon as that, now the, first, the other time out in the, out in the field, the other three, actually, but all of them were all just, just, you know how it is. They're just locked down in the full strut. I mean, they just are puffed out, and they're not dropping strut for nothing. So that bird turns and sees the four new birds in the field instantly. That head went from red, white, and blue, and it just, just all the color train, it was just white, stark white. And that bird maneuvered and changed his position, walked, marched his way towards the new birds. He didn't run them off. He just marched towards the new birds and then positioned himself in between, halfway between the new birds and his hen and just remained in full strut, big white face. The four new birds just kept walking right down the field edge, went around the corner and out into the field. And as soon as they got that they started to leave and walk away, the original bird just dropped strut, turned around, walked back to his head, or walked back to his hen. His head went straight back to red, white, and blue. So, like you, dude, I have gone through, I do not have examples of, I've got piles of examples of, of gobblers breeding hen. I do not have an example of a gobbler breeding a hen with a white face that I have found so far, but I have multiple examples where a bird has a white face, white head, when he is in the middle of a dominance display. Now, again, I'm not criticizing Matt or anybody else that is having success with that white head because, again, if you look at their situation, most of them, they are in a situation where there are multiple mature birds running around in an area. And there's probably a, a sizable number of, you know, three, four, five-plus-year-old birds, very mature dominant birds. So it makes sense that, yes, okay, if, he, if a bird is coming up and bringing a hen and there's other birds around, well, it makes sense in my, as a behavioral guy, it makes sense that he would have a white head because he's displaying, he's on top of the hen, he's getting ready to breed her, but his head color is telling everybody else, I'm the dominant one, I'm the boss, okay? Now, whether or not other birds in his area respect that or not, that's irrelevant, but he may be displaying to all the other birds around, uh, don't mess with me, I'm the boss, I'm the dominant bird, I'm going to breed this hen, where, okay, so all the other birds come in to kick him off because they want to breed. The example that Matt gave where, you know, that one bird came over the hill, saw that white face and came smoking down the hill. Okay, well, again, for me, it makes sense. If you're dealing with a bird who has been working a particular field, working a particular area, and he has successfully defended that area or defended the hens in that area, it makes sense to me that he would actually respond better to another white face decoy because now that other white-faced decoy is saying, no, no, I'm the boss. I'm the dominant bird in this area. Oh, the hell you are, and here he comes marching in. Whereas if it was just a simple red, white, and blue head, that Tom might come over, peek over the hill and go, yeah, all right, he's some young whippersnapper that's just trying to show off. He's trying to get some heads. Eh, they're not going to pay attention. I'm going to go back over here and do my own thing. 
If you're in those situations where you have extreme competition and you have a good population of mature birds, I absolutely believe that you will find success in it. Like you and I talked originally, however, for where I hunt, for the populations of birds that I deal with, and when I'm looking at, you know, I'm going to go hunt such and such a place, or I'm going to go hunt, you know, like you, I, I'm, I'm going to go down with you in Mexico, or I'm going to go to Colorado, or I'm going to go to Wyoming, or Nebraska, or Kansas, where I'm hunting. If I'm just going to just strike out and go hunt, and I don't know what type of population of birds I'm going to engage, I will always go the red, white, and blue head. You know, it kind of reminds me, in the, you know, I'm a fly fisherman, and it reminds me of certain colors of flies that guys like to use. And I, I don't necessarily think that the guys, you know, have a reason that that particular fly, you know, oh, I'm using purple because of X, Y, Z, but when it catches fish, they keep using purple. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things, like, I'm kind of in the middle. Part of me is like, yeah, I, I really want to know why the white is striking, you know, such a response. But I'm also of the camp that, hey, I don't care if he's telling me he paints the head yellow and he gets yeah. a huge response. Like, you know, yeah. trying to kill turkeys is my ultimate goal. And trying to understand them is also a goal. But I, I would say you are in the camp that's a little bit more, you want to understand them at, at all costs. You obviously want to kill them, too, you know, or yeah. harvest them. Um, but, you know, it, you know it, it, if he said, hey, I'm painting it orange, and for whatever reason they're running in and, you know, kill, you know, you know committing suicide, on, you know, right there in front of us, then, you know, I'd throw an orange one out there. You know, whatever's working. Yeah. Um, I just always find it fascinating to hear the different stories. Um, I am actually going to uh, paint up one of my DSD Jakes and paint a white face, and I'm going to try some sets this in Mexico and set the regular Jake and set the white face. I'm going to try and set them, you know, equidistant where... You know, yeah. not, not like if a gobbler's coming from the left, set the white on the left. I'm going to try and set it where it gives them a choice, an equal choice, there and you go. see if, if, you know, birds are going to make a distinct difference. And, yeah, they, you know, nine times out of ten they went towards the white. Well, then we can start hypothesizing nah. as to why that, why that happened. Um, exactly. exactly. And, and, that's, and I, if you want to test it, that's it. Yeah, and I mean, I get the idea that, hey, it works, and Matt's like, I would never take anything but a white face, either a white face Jake or a white face gobbler. You know, I get it. He's trying to be successful every time he goes out, for sure. Um, I, I totally get that. And so, you know, it's just going to be fun to kind of test it out. I, I wonder if it has anything to do with also the visibility of white versus red, white, and blue, versus, you know, red, you know, white is a, pr a color that you can see from a long ways out, and I wonder if it's, it's, you know, that's a triggering mechanism as well. 
Well, and it, it, it absolutely very well may be, and you and I spoke about this, too, about the fact, especially early morning, how many times have you been out, you know, sitting under a roost, birds are still gobbling, they're going crazy on the roost, and all of a sudden, something catches your eye at the corner of your eye, and it's that white head, it's that bright white head coming through the, you know, whether, you know, wherever, it just, it's so dark, you can barely see anything, but man, that white head just glows and you can see it coming through the through the, the darkness there. So absolutely, it does, it definitely does stand out very, very well and, and that actually may be a benefit in certain areas as well. All right, so you are uh, waiting on an archery hunter to show up, uh, bluebird weather, birds out strutting, you've got another weather change coming. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your strategy, what you foresee happening, and kind of your game plan as of right now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the same boat that we were in the last time we spoke, where I'm basically just sitting, getting a pattern, getting an idea of where these birds are, what are they doing, where are they going. The trick that I, the problem that I have now, and this is going to be the challenge, I've got several areas, well, I've got a bunch of different areas, but the most consistent areas with the best birds right now are areas that are out in open fields or, or in certain areas where when it gets windy, especially if it's going to get windy from, say, like a west or northwest direction or whatever, they're not going to be there. They're going to be tucked down into these little protected sheltered pockets. Well, I've got a couple of those sheltered pockets, but the problem is, is the, the vast majority of birds are not there right now. Now, that's not to say they won't be when the wind starts blowing, but, um, yeah, this right now the weather is absolutely gorgeous, but when he comes in Thursday night, the wind is, start to, is supposed to start to blow, and then Friday... And Saturday, we're supposed to have 30-plus mile-an-hour winds and cold, like 30, 40 degrees, rain, snow, just just, <laughs> just horrible weather. So I think what it's going to be is, it be, you know, today and tomorrow especially, I'm going to be just, okay, where are these birds, where are they roosting, and where is going to be the, ne the nearest protected pocket that I can get in out of the wind and I think our strategy is just going to be to dress warm, get in early, and just have patience and sit. You know, obviously I'm going to call. I'm still going to have the decoys out. But the birds may pitch out, fly out, go feed, or try to go feed where they normally are. But then they're going to circle back, and we know that they're going to be in those protected pockets. That's exactly what happened uh, last Tuesday with the, with the girls. Um, you know, it took them probably four hours to finally work their way to us. They were there. They just were taking the time. They just they just were staying in that protected shelter belt, but they just finally slowly worked their way to us. Once they were able to hear our call, and then it was over. Um, they came marching right in. But it's just going to be a patience game and being in those pot those pockets where they can get in out of the wind and preferably if we got any sort of sun in the sun out of the wind where it's a little bit warmer for them, a little bit more protected, uh, and just. Again, be patient and just dress warm enough where we can sit it out and, and wait. Well, I'll be watching for your success. Um, I'm getting excited to head down for Goulds, and um, it's a great time of year, isn't it? 
Oh, it, it, it is, man. It, people want to ask us all the time, you know, what, if you had one to choose from, would it be elk or turkey? Said, oh, when it's elk season, I say it's elk. When it's turkey season, I'm like, mmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm just glad they don't overlap. I'm, I'm glad oh, can you imagine? Separate season. No, can you imagine? It'd be rough to have to choose. I, I think it'd be rough on our spouses. I, at, least, at least it gives our, our spouses a couple months to recover from. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, so what's going on with row hunting resources? Uh, right now, what can people expect coming uh, over the summer yeah. and into elk season? Well, I just posted on the elk module. Uh, so, we, yeah, we just keep, if you're following along Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff, I'm still putting stuff on social media. Uh, but from an elk standpoint, the elk module, I just uploaded a handful of videos, um, and I've got a couple of other ones getting ready to, to get put in and, and get uploaded we're actually going to expand a couple of the the sections like so so for instance in the behavior section i'm going to move some things around a little bit just to make it a little bit more organized for folks and get a better handle on stuff but we're going to dive into a little bit more behavior stuff and then i'm going to also dive in a little bit more this year on more of the scouting and planning stuff people are asking me all the time how the heck am i you know, how do, how do I go about finding elk, and why am I always successful at finding animals? So that's going to be a big one this summer. So, yeah, I've, I've got a bunch of other videos already getting posted on to the elk module. There's going to be a bunch more this summer as well. And then, like we talked about before, uh, especially here in May, once we start rocking and rolling with some of our habitat stuff, I'm going to start putting together more videos on the actual habitat stuff that we're doing out here in Kansas food plots, habitat improvement projects, what are challenges, what are we doing to, to mitigate those challenges, and, and what are we doing to kind of help our populations as much as possible. Good stuff, man. Um, <clears throat> want to give you a chance to let people know how they can find you, as always, and I'll be watching for your success. Thank you, brother. Yeah, no, just Roe Hunting Resources, R-O-E, Hunting Resources, and pretty much that's, I mean, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, most of the time it's Instagram or, or Facebook, uh, Row Hunting Resources, YouTube channel, Row Hunting Resources, and then if you're interested in that elk module, the, the deeper instructional stuff, it's just rowhuntingresources.com, and uh, yeah, jump on there, but get, get anywhere you want to find us is just row, R-O-E, huntingresources.com. Awesome, buddy. All right, God bless. Take care. All right, brother. I'll be looking at your stuff, too. Good luck in Mexico. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye.